Life at St Mary's Hospice. You can take the time you need with patients, which is sometimes a bit difficult in other specialties. Really help people when they're having sometimes the hardest times of their life and that's really rewarding. A podcast that might surprise you. Sometimes I compare our roles to a bit of like a salesperson because we're trying to sell the hospice. We're trying to tell them why should you support St Mary's? Why should you choose St Mary's as your charity of choice? We're going behind the scenes at the hospice, a charity that changes lives. Making a difference since 1988, it continues to grow even during challenging times. In this series, we'll hear about the range of care offered, how the hospice has inspired people from all walks of life. Nursing staff from the, everybody, the admin staff, they're just wonderful people. We gain an insight into what makes a palliative care nurse, hear from the person in charge and those who keep much-needed money coming in. We're doing okay is the reality, um, but it's a concern in terms of the cost of living is going up. It'll inform, entertain, and it might even change your mind about how you view hospice care. We were talking to somebody and they said, oh, you know, what would you like? Well, I'd really like to um, see Mr. Darcy. And I was thinking, oh, yes, that sounds like a really good. I'd like to, quite like to see Mr. Darcy as well. So I was like, oh, I'm sure we could facilitate that. And little did I know Mr. Darcy was a horse. Welcome to Life at St. Mary's Hospice. Each year, around 100 patients receive care within the inpatient unit. Last year, there were almost 1,800 day visits by the Hospice at Home team, who go out and about to visit people in their own homes. Kate Davison is the clinical lead for all of the Hospice services, and she might be surprised to learn not all are offered within the Hospice building in Ulverston. It, it's a great, you know, every day we, we laugh when we come into work, we find out what's really important to every individual and we work with that. You know, a couple of years ago, we were talking to somebody and um, they said, oh, you know, what would you like? Well, I'd really like to um, see Mr. Darcy. And I was thinking, oh, yes, that sounds like a really good. I'd like quite like to see Mr. Darcy as well. So I was like, oh, I'm sure we could facilitate that. And little did I know Mr. Darcy was a horse. But, but... You know, you know, because we've got such a team that are so brilliant, we we made that happen. So Mr. Darcy came, you know, and and it was, um, yeah. <laughs> looking back, you think, gosh, you know, how how did how did we get through a lot of things? But but we have, and we've we've done that as a team. You've got an amazing story. First of all, going back to Liverpool's, you know. Do you think it's almost fate that you went to a hospice and you started work there? Because I mean, it would have been so easy, wasn't it? I know there was, you know, didn't need nurses at, at that point, but it came around full circle. You you probably would have got into nursing, wouldn't you, in, in mainstream NHS trusts somewhere, I'm sure. <clears throat> but the fact that you chose to go into a hospice and that, that kind of care, palliative care, as you say, it's very specialised. and Not for everyone, is it, even no. in, in, in the NHS, is it? No, because I think, you know, with with all the best will in the world, you, you you come into this job and for some people it's to make things better, isn't it? Now, when you come into palliative care, we're not here to cure people, but what we're here is to enable that living before you die. So I think I think that initial moment as a student nurse triggered something in me. 
and I think had I not got the, that opportunity it would always have been something I would have strived for is to work in palliative care this is this is just if I was a bar of rock and you split me in half I'd have palliative care all the way through me um, and and that that I don't think will ever change it won't it's it, you know I, I, I love my job I'm really passionate about the job I'm really passionate about this team because it's just a, such a special team um, that you know we 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 do want to make a difference you know and and you know we can do that in palliative care you know we we want people to be able to to live don't we that you know that's that's you know what's going to make you tick what makes you tick you know we we had somebody in here um not long ago and uh, he used to get up really really early in the morning and and you know it's only when you're sitting down and you're having that conversation with somebody he was a postman and that, you know, you think, well, you know, that's why he gets up, that's his routine. And who are we to, you know, because at the end of the day, we, we, he's not fitting into our routine. We need to fit into his routine. It's about that person. That person's unique. That person's an individual. You know, we, I always think we get a snapshot of somebody while they're here. There's, but there's so much more to that person, isn't there, that we really need to tap into if that's what they want us to do. It's important that we understand their wishes, what, 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 what do they want to get out of us? What are their expectations and what, what can we do to help them reach those expectations? And, and talking of which, can we talk about perhaps community care? Because I know you're involved, it's not just coming into yeah. hospice. And do you think there's still that misconception from people that you know the hospice is a building and it's, and it's here and these beds and that's it? Do you think people still don't get that there is hospice at home and, and night sitting and other, other yeah. um, aspects of care which you look after as well? Yeah, so we've got um, the hospice at home team which go out and um, support patients with a life-limiting condition and those that are important to them. And they'll go out and the um, district nurse and the GP is still their primary caregiver, but we, we're like a bolt-on service. So we will go out and, um, you know, in liaison with the team, with the district nursing teams, help with symptom management. We can reprime syringe drivers. We're there for support. Um, and we have the luxury of time as well, which I think the district nursing teams don't tend to have a, a great deal of. Um, and then we've got the night sitting service. And again, that's a waking service. So they will sit with the, the patient um, while the relative can go off and get some sleep. And then we've got the fast track service, which is um, a relatively new service. So when uh, people are eligible for um, CHC fast track funding so they've got um, a prognosis of less than three months and their preferred place of care is is home then we can put the team in that will uh, provide hands-on care and support for up to four times a day and you know they can do like other things like emptying bins washing dishes personal care and again support for the family so that works really well in terms of having the hospice at home and the fast track and night sitting because it's kind of like a bit of a wraparound service and then obviously we've got all the living well services or the compassionate communities hub where um we're doing a complementary therapy the hearts program fatigue and breathlessness management and creative therapy and then we've got um the dementia as well which we have the uh, memory lane cafe as well so it's we're, we're trying to reach as many people as what we can and it's just you know we're, we're here to support anybody who's got a life-limiting illness really specialist palliative care doctor Geeta is a relatively new recruit 
She arrived at St Mary's from Spain just as the pandemic began. And while getting to know Cumbria might have been delayed by the restrictions, she soon felt at home working at the hospice. I think it's just the natural environment that we're in. I mean, obviously the location helps because it's a lovely location. But I think as soon as people, a lot of people who don't know what the hospice is like, or don't really know what to expect, comment when they come that it's nothing like they expected it to be because there isn't that sort of old-fashioned thought and feeling of doom and end of life and stuff. And a lot of people come, there's a really high percentage of our patients that come in because they have a terminal diagnosis, but they don't actually come here for end of life, they come for symptom management, um, because it's, 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 it's an area that sort of it falls between, they're not really being seen by oncology anymore if they've got cancer, or they're not being seen by other teams anymore um, because they're too end of life, and then it's, it's an area that can fall between the nets, so we try and sort of scoop up those people and help them. So yeah, it's not necessarily end of life, they'll come in, get some symptom control, we can help them sort things out at home and then they get back home again and and then they know the hospice as well and, and it can make things more familiar and easier when the time does come to to choose where they want to be for end of life. And is you know, do you make a point of being um, if people ask you a straightforward question, do you give them straightforward answers? How do how do you how do you yeah. manage that relationship of you know somebody who perhaps doesn't really want to hear you know the news but mm. you know do you, how do you broach that subject mm. and how, how do you manage it that relationship you mentioned you know they yeah. might come initially for yeah. you know kind of stabilizing care but but you yeah. know that eventually they will come back how do you how do you plan it well i think that's one of the things that that's one of the reasons i do really like this type of work is because you have like i mentioned before the time to invest with people and build a relationship and gain trust and one of the things i say to people quite often when they come in is we take time to sort of just get to know you you get to know us not make too many changes if we can to start with um, and adapt your communication style a little bit to, to their needs and just try and work with them and, and it, some people might want things straight up tell me how it is and that's absolutely fine um, and some people will perhaps be a little bit less open to things and and it's a, it's, a, it's a work in progress and yeah, we, it's just about being adaptable and but, and at the same time always obviously having the, the patient's core needs at, at heart, you know. And I guess the family as well because you're kind of managing two different relationships, aren't you? The yeah. patient obviously family, primarily yeah. but then the family were ringing yeah. up, visiting. How do you do it? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the family's a massive part. Family and loved ones are a massive part of, of the whole thing and that's another thing that we say to people, we're not here just for you, we're here for all of you um that's we, you know we have our family support team um and bereavement services that help they'll they'll go in and have a chat with the families and give them psychological support if they want it um we've got our complementary therapy team which can we also offer massages and things like that to, to family members um the, the family want to know more than the patient wants to know or the other way around um it's it's just about working human relationships really like it would be in any other area of life but of course the patient is that is is the main priority okay in your own time when you're ready if you take a nice deep breath in and care itself comes in many forms complimentary therapist joe sherwood offers the kind of care some may need at any time it's called the hearts process um, which stands for hands-on empathy aroma relaxation textures and sound so um, depending on the patient we adapt 
the session to them so if it's more appropriate to do a longer visualization at the beginning just to get them more relaxed then we we go with that and maybe less of the actual hands-on therapy um, if people um, are in a greater need of more hands-on work then we'll do a shorter visualization we use aromatherapy either directly on our hands or we'd use it in the air um, sometimes we have background music sometimes we don't so it, it's kind of a, a multi-sensory um, treatment and what difference does it make feelings of incredible relaxation um, and I think just very soothing touch so very therapeutic touch but very non-invasive um, very nurturing um, particularly for people that are approaching end of life it can be um, it's such a gentle therapy to be able to offer Then there's the food. Treatment can affect taste buds. So listening to the requests from patients, however obscure, is what Claire Tyson and her hospitality team are increasingly known for. There's some strange requests. <laughs> What's the strangest you've had? So, um, you know, there's puree diets and they can get quite uh, interesting and it'll palate change. So, um, you know, there's a patient who likes, um, oh gosh, it is tuna and beans and cheese and all pureed down with a bit of milk and wholemeal bread sounds absolutely disgusting but he enjoys it our kitchen assistant doesn't enjoy washing it <laughs> <laughs> but food is it's just an important part of people's lives isn't and it and you know what it's a really important part of care and actually you know our chefs go in each morning uh, they go to talk to the patients each day to see what they want. We go with a frame of a menu. They're offered exactly the same as what we'd have in the cafe with extras on the side. But if, if they want two poached eggs on toast, then they can have two poached eggs on toast. They can have what they want. Um, but, we'll, you know, it's good to, to go and say to them, what do you like to eat? What, do, what would you have if you were at home and you didn't feel very well? What would be your go-to food? And also, you've got to think about how, how much more... It is than the actual money that you make. Sometimes this is the first time people, this is the first contact they've ever had with St Mary's Hospice. And what we try and do is take the scariness away um, and we, we show that it's a nice place to be and it's, it's not. So in two years time or three years time or 10 years time, when somebody says to you, actually, we think that a stay in the hospice might benefit you because people don't always die here. They can go home, they've got coming for uh, respite for beds management all that kind of thing what they'll remember is that how they felt how what they ate how they felt how we made them feel and that's really important and a really important part of the introduction to St Mary's Hospice you know do, do you feel you have uh, uh, this is the front door perhaps the hospice? I think it can be the front door for very many people and if their first contact um, you know and also through fundraising people make contact with St Mary's but actually being on site in the building as it were it makes them see that they're not going to open a door and see somebody lying in a bed that just doesn't happen it's a fun place to work and actually it can be a fun place to stay as daft as it sounds it's not all doom and gloom you know let's make it a nice experience Joe Firth's brother, Fudd, we'll hear more about him in the next episode, was an inpatient at St Mary's for a month. She says having access to the kind of food he fancied when he wanted it made a real difference. 
he didn't like anything institutionalised in any way, any routine. He was very much an independent and free-spirited um, man. I think that's the nicest way I can describe it. So he, he was very reluctant at first to, to come into the hospice. Um, and I can still remember the day very vividly. And it was only a couple of days after he, he'd been here and he just looked at me and said, it's all right here actually, isn't it? And I said, yes, I think I'll give it a bit more time and I'll stay. Um, one of his particular highlights was, you know, sort of every mid, mid morning, the chef would come into his room, um, greet him, talk to him about other things, not medical, um, not about what was going on. Just, did you see that film last night? Or did you watch the football or general chit chat where he could just be himself um, and just actually ask, what would you like today? Um, you know, these are the choices on the menu, but what actually do you fancy? Um, he loved that. He felt like he had his own personal chef. Um, you know, he, he, his tastes were catered to and he thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, he was big on his food. He was very a very critical um, eater. He liked things a certain way. Um, but he, he did, he loved it here and he, he, he loved um, that personal touch and that he could eat when he wanted and have what he wanted. Um, and I think that's just one of many reasons that make the hospice so special. How long was he in here for? He was in for 30 days. Yeah, so relatively brief time, um, but it just made such an impact on us as a family, um, he really relaxed, um, his symptoms were under control and I just don't envisage that he, he could have managed in any other environment. And it was the experience of spending time in the hospice that also made a difference to Jo. After working in care for years, she decided to take the plunge and retrain as a nurse with the aim of working at St Mary's. I was in care before I came here um, with FUD. So I worked as a home care worker. When I came in with FUD, I can remember saying to the staff, I don't know how you do what you do. It's never something I'd thought of. And I just, I, I just, was in awe of them, quite honestly. I didn't know how they could nurse somebody during the last days of, of the life. I think it's one of the most incredibly difficult professions emotionally, physically. Um, but the end of 30 days, and I saw the impact they made on the, my brother, I saw the impact they made on my parents, my other siblings, you know, my family started work here just over 12 months after Fudd passed away. So I came into work as a, a healthcare assistant. I'm learning all the time. I'm working with the most experienced, knowledgeable, caring individuals that even though I work alongside them, I am still inspired by them daily. They're just incredible. The little touches they make and how they think about everything for that person. They get to know that person. It's so individual and the care is tailored for them. Not everybody's the same. The care's different for every patient. Yeah, and now I'm training to be a nursing associate. I've just started a degree and I just want to continue to learn so I can give more back and be a better 
carer and an advocate for the patients that come through the doors. Because your brother saw this in you, didn't he? When, when he was here, he re- recognised that you know you, a spark had been lit in you. You knew that this was the place you wanted to be at, didn't you? And, and didn't he say something about this is where you should be as well? Yeah, he did say um, he knew I was always a caring person, um, and I, my career path was I, I just wanted to be a mum and, and look after children. But um, yeah, there was one particular day, and he, he just looked at me and he said, "You you've messed up our jaw." And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you should have been a nurse, shouldn't you? So, yeah, I'm doing this a little bit for him, but because I think it was a bit of a realisation for for both of us that actually this is what I want to do. Um, It's a very rewarding job. It's a very humbling job. I'm privileged at the same time to be a part of that with the families and, and the patients. But I still have in my heart the impact the staff made to us you know over five years ago it, it'll never leave me and if I can just imprint just a small amount of that into another family I think I've done a, a good job For hospice chaplain Peter Taylor offering a friendly voice and ear at a time when it might be needed most is his aim a former teacher and cleric, he thought he'd come to South Cumbria for a quiet life, but discovered a new job and a new parish. Cut a long story short, I had an interview, very informal, I didn't need paying, and that helped to, uh, for them to say, yes, we do need you, please. So I come in now every Thursday and every Monday and uh, spend as long as I need to here visiting staff and patients. and when there's an emergency call can you come now which is a great excuse to come with my t-shirt and jeans and just sling my badge on when I go and visit patients so my, my routine is I knock at the door and say is it okay to pop in for 10 minutes or so or do you want a bit of peace and quiet so they have ownership of the, the visit and then try and find a common denominator somewhere I mean if it's a guy sometimes sorry to be sexist but uh, if you said into football then and we get talking about that and uh, and then have you, how long have you been poorly and that kind of thing then get to know the relatives often the relatives are in and and to get away from the idea that everybody comes to a hospice to die they don't some come for medical uh, reasons are you get the tablets readjusted and that kind of thing and when we had respite care that was great because we had um, people in regularly who needed to give their loved ones a break and uh, I enjoyed that part meeting oh hello Andrew again and uh, John and whoever it may be and there's a great sense of humour in the place despite yeah there is sadness of course and uh, people die and so that's my experience and you need a sensitivity as a chaplain not to barge in spiritually I never do that Usually I take a cue from the patient. But one of the things I've discovered really does work is this. I say at the end of a visit, perhaps a second visit, would you like me to pray for you here and now or in the car afterwards or not at all? <laughs> and uh, it gives them the ownership of the, the question and the answer. And that works. And it's amazing how many people who perhaps have put religion, Christianity on one side for years, suddenly it sparks something up.
especially when they're possibly near the end of life. I love the work, I really do, and I feel called to do it. I feel very comfortable. My wife says, I couldn't do what you do and go into booze afterwards. <laughs> but uh, I love it, and I, I love seeing the, the staff as well, the nurses, the doctors. So in a way, I'm giving something into the hospice, but I'm also benefiting personally. Next time, we hear how a new approach to considering personal affairs well before end-of-life care might be the way forward. It's important because you're ensuring your loved ones, your friends, your family do not have the stress of trying to figure out what you might want and you have peace of mind that you are preparing your family for when you die and they can fulfil your wishes and they don't have to worry about it and that gives them space and time to grieve. And the growing group of volunteers that helps families come to terms with loss. You hear about these sort of things and it's somewhere where like-minded people can meet up together. We're all in a similar sort of situation and everybody gets on well. Don't miss out on the podcast that might well change how you view your hospice. Thanks for listening to Life at St Mary's Hospice. If you want to learn more about what we do every day, take a look at our website, stmaryshospice.org.uk, or follow us on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>